Hello there, welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. This is episode 103. If you haven't already, do consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Becoming a member gets you various extras including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk as soon as the episode is published. I'll also send you transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is part of Bloomsbury Publishing, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. New episodes are published every two weeks, so membership amounts to no more than $6 per month. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's crack on with our latest episode. In it we hear from Jonathan Rugman. He's a foreign affairs correspondent at Channel 4 News and also the author of The Killing in the Consulate, investigating the life and death of Jamal Khashoggi, published by Simon and Schuster. The book recently hit the shelves shortly after the first anniversary of the killing of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi by a 15-man hit squad in Saudi Arabia's Istanbul consulate on the 2nd of October 2018. Of course, the incident caused a huge huge diplomatic storm at the time and dominated headlines for weeks with the world fixated by the gruesome details that were gradually coming to light thanks to the steady drip drip of leaks coming from the Turkish authorities. Behind the scenes a high stakes game of diplomatic chess was also underway fueled by an apparent regional rivalry between Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The book examines all those aspects of the killing and it also delves into the complicated personal and professional life that Khashoggi had led up until he walked into the consulate to pick up a document that would have enabled him to marry his Turkish fiancée Hatice Cengiz who was waiting for him outside. The epigraph of the book is a quote from US President Donald Trump in the days after Khashoggi went missing. He said, this one has caught the imagination of the world, unfortunately. So I started by asking Jonathan Rugman why exactly the Khashoggi case captured the imagination of the world's media in such a way. I think it was an extraordinary thing for a journalist to be filmed on CCTV camera entering a diplomatic compound in Istanbul and then not coming out again. His fiancée waiting on the pavement for him to come out until past midnight that first night and then again past midnight the second night and the world's TV cameras gathering outside uh, in what was a clear case of at the very best kidnap, at the very worst murder. And... Uh, 
not only did he disappear on camera, although the Saudis thought that they had removed all the videotape from the scene, um, but the murder and the lead up to the murder was bugged by Turkish intelligence. And so one had these extraordinary leaks of conversations, people preparing for Khashoggi to arrive, even snippets of what was actually said during the, the killing itself. Plus, you had a choice that the world's most powerful man had to make, which was whether to side with NATO ally Turkey and throw the book at the Saudis, if you like, or whether to side with the world's biggest arms importer and world's biggest oil exporter and to side with the Saudi crown prince. That's why I put those words at the beginning of the book, because there, there is that crucial word, unfortunately. I mean, this was not something Donald Trump wanted to deal with. This was not a choice he particularly wanted to make, but it was a choice that he did make in that he ultimately sided with the with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, the book details the development of the whole controversy, the days after Khashoggi disappeared and the subsequent diplomatic wrangling. Uh, but you also uh, go back to sort of sketch Khashoggi's life, uh, some of the lesser known details of it. Could you just sketch out where he was born, you know, what his family, what his family background was like, uh, where he grew up, etc.? He was from quite a modest Saudi family in Jeddah, although he had Ottoman ancestry. If you went back 300 years, you could find the Kashikjis living in Anatolia near, near Kaiseri. Uh, it's true that his second cousin was Adnan Khashoggi, the infamous arms dealer. And it's also true that through Adnan, he was related to the physician, to the first king of Saudi Arabia. But this was not a particularly rich branch of the family. His father owned a, a textile shop. It was a modest beginning in Jeddah. But crucially, like many young Saudis, Khashoggi traveled abroad to America to study uh, at Indiana State University. And I I think he emerged from that still struggling really to to find his place in the world in the sense that he had had a western education but he'd also grown up at the same time as Osama bin Laden whom he knew vaguely he had also been a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and so I think you can see the arc of his life is one in which he is trying to reconcile his religious beliefs with his uh, western education and I think he rose to prominence as an Arab journalist by the time he died he had a million and a half followers on on Twitter, he was very well known, but he had also been a government advisor. He'd been a spokesman for the Saudi ambassador in Washington and in, and in London. He had been a foreign correspondent befriending Osama bin Laden in the, in the mountains of Afghanistan. But he mellowed with time, as most of us do. And the most significant event of his lifetime, I think, was the Arab Spring, in which he saw a dream he had long harbored apparently come to fruition in the sense of democracy in the Muslim world, in the Arab world, even though that turned out to be a nightmare in the sense that Yemen and, and Syria and, and Egypt and Libya, I mean, it all went bad, with the exception of Tunisia. At the same time, you had a change of monarch in Saudi Arabia. So King Abdullah left the scene. King Salman took over with his headstrong young son, who was rapidly promoted to be crown prince. And I think this combination of factors, this change of the situation in Riyadh, and this extraordinary extraordinary development uh, with the Arab Spring that had happened a few years earlier. I think that set him on a, diff a different course and a different relationship with Saudi Arabia's rulers. 
Uh, you mentioned there that uh, as he was growing up, he uh, at some point was acquaintances with uh, Osama bin Laden. And that uh, latter connection has often been used uh, or exploited rather by the uh, Saudi regime to try and sort of sully Khashoggi's name after his death. Uh, how did they come to know each other? Well, their families may have known each other when they were very young in the sense that bin Laden's father had won the contract to redevelop one of the holy sites. But but above and beyond that, they may well have met as young men, as students in Jeddah. And then Khashoggi's first and most perhaps important assignment during the 1980s when he was a young journalist was to go to Afghanistan and to, to write about uh, the war with the Russians. And he met bin Laden there. But one had right back then the the origins of al-Qaeda in the sense of young men flocking to a a battleground from all over the world and in the case of the the war against the Russians helping the Afghans to win that war and to to drive the Russians out I think Khashoggi looked back on that time with a certain amount of emotion and nostalgia the first war that any foreign correspondent can have that kind of effect but I think he also tried to persuade Osama bin Laden to, to change. I mean, he visited him in the 1990s when he was living in exile in Sudan and tried to persuade him on behalf of the bin Laden family to come back to Saudi Arabia. It didn't work, but Shogji is at least a note in in the story of Al-Qaeda. There was also a sense of somebody he had known and been fond of having gone off the rails and him him regretting that hugely and having some residual um, respect for bin Laden even. But that wasn't so out of keeping with, with the mood in Saudi Arabia, given that you know, just after the 9-11 attacks, senior members of the royal family couldn't quite believe that a Saudi could have done this and wanted to believe it was a conspiracy by Israeli intelligence. Uh, later on, Khashoggi worked in the uh, Saudi embassies in Washington and London. And as you describe in the book, he was actually a consummate insider in a sense. He had this critical perspective, but he was always very cautious about raising that criticism. And that was the, the tightrope that he was often walking on. I think it did define him for most of his life in the sense that he, he got married and he had a family and journalism then as now was a, was a precarious business and one had to stay on the right side of the royal court and one needed sponsors, powerful princes who could either provide employment or, or protect one. And somebody needed to explain the thinking of the Saudi government in the aftermath of the September the 11th attacks. And he successfully did that and he, he bought a flat in Washington. Washington, which was later to become his refuge when he fled from Saudi Arabia in 2017. I think his views did change. I think he became more and more outspoken uh, in his criticism. Uh, he boasted that he was one of the few people who'd actually been fired from the same job twice at the same newspaper because he would push for reform on issues like giving women the right to drive. And so it was a, it was a, a, t- a tightrope is the right word. And he, he got sacked from a, a television station backed by his friend Prince Al-Walid 24 hours after the TV station opened because he he allowed a Shia politician to appear on it. But then I think after the Arab Spring and then the the rise of the Saudi crown prince, Shoji fled to Washington. And then I think he he had a a late flowering, if you like, of of his own opinions and his own views because he got a job as a columnist in the Washington Post. He wrote about 20 columns, wasn't paid very much for them. But he did write about his homeland with more 
more sincerity, I think, more passion than he perhaps he had done before. And he leveled the most extraordinary criticism at the Saudi crown prince from the most powerful capital in the world, Washington, D.C., in one of the world's most powerful newspapers, the Washington Post. And I think that that ultimately, that that act of betrayal, as it was perceived in Riyadh, was what led to his death. And that, in a funny way, it was a big shift, actually, because, you know, we're not talking about someone who was an implacable, sweeping opponent of the Saudi regime. You know, he was for a long time, in many senses, a moderate, an insider. You say at one point, quote, that although the Saudi crown prince would later tell the White House that Khashoggi was guilty of a close association with the Brotherhood, the irony was that the Muslim Brotherhood members in exile regarded him as a royal court insider who couldn't be trusted. So uh, it's kind of strange, strange that he was targeted because he, he's far from the most implacable critic of the uh, Saudi regime. I think that, well, I think there are two things to be said about that. First of all, it was perceived as an act of betrayal it, it, in that he had been an insider and, and then he had suddenly become an outsider and his children and his wife weren't allowed to travel because of what he was writing and he became incredibly depressed. He was sitting in his flat in Tyson's Corner in Virginia, actually finding solace in his in his faith, um, visiting mosques in the, in the Virginia area, as you say, regarded with suspicion because he had been this insider and he was extremely grateful to, to those friends from the Arab world and they weren't necessarily Saudis they were some of them were Egyptians uh, there was a Libyan I mean there were various people who whom he befriended with huge gratitude because he, there he was sitting on his balcony in, in Virginia smoking cigars listening to Arab music having very guarded conversations with his children because he feared that their phone calls might be bugged having his wife having divorced him on the grounds that he had fled and she didn't want to flee with him. And according to one account, his previous membership of the Muslim Brotherhood was cited as, as grounds for divorce. So an extremely lonely, if not tragic figure, um, writing these blistering pieces, which he passionately believed in, and then falling in love with a, a younger Turkish woman, 24 years younger than he was, and meeting her in Istanbul in the final year of his life, and hoping that Istanbul might be that fusion for him between East and West that it so often is portrayed as as a city, somewhere where he could hang his hat and feel at home. Now, before Khashoggi met uh, Adjir Cengiz, uh, he actually met with uh, Erdogan in 2015. Uh, I was interested to read in the book. And at that time, he was looking to see if he could open a Arabic TV channel from Turkey. Uh, of course, there are many Arab TV channels uh, based in Istanbul, particularly since the Arab Spring. And according to the book, uh, the Turkish government thought uh, that it would cause too much of a problem with the Saudi government. So it uh, demurred, essentially, and um, he didn't end up going down that road. Could you just put some flesh on the bones there of that uh, curious incident? Well, he'd actually met Erdogan a lot earlier than that in in the 1990s when what was then known as the Refah Party began its its rise to power. And then, of course, you had the Arab Spring in 2011 when um, Erdogan was repositioning himself across the Arab world in a way that many Gulf states simply were not. They were worried that this notion of democracy might, might spread. And as uh, you say, he, he met Erdogan again. And he thought about moving a TV station to Turkey and, and the Turk said, you know, we don't want to have you here because, I mean, they said it very politely, I think. They said you would cause us problems with Saudi Arabia if you were broadcasting uh, from Istanbul. Although many friends of Khashoggi's were doing just that for different television channels, uh, Egyptians, Palestinians, people he saw right up until the last weeks of his life and people he, he would visit in Istanbul. And many of his friends 
friends there, Arab friends and indeed Turkish friends, tried to persuade him to move there. Uh, they thought he would be happy there, it would be the right milieu for him. But actually, I think he decided that giving up the Washington Post and giving up Washington would be a bad idea. And he had a vision of perhaps commuting uh, between the two places, marrying Hatice Cengiz, uh, which he was due to do in the, in the very week that he was killed. Now, moving on to that uh, very grim episode, uh, the assassination of Khashoggi uh, in the Saudi consulate, there's a section right in the middle of the book that includes lengthy transcripts of uh, what is reportedly the security audio recording of the moment of Khashoggi's death. And it's pretty graphic stuff. What is that based on and how did you get hold of it? Some of those transcripts are open source in the sense that they are in the um, UN Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Executions uh, report. Some of it I got from other sources. I, I didn't base any of the transcripts on what had appeared on the Turkish press. I didn't want to make that leap of faith. Because there was a certain amount of manipulation going on whereby excerpts were leaked to the Turkish and American press in a way to ramp up the pressure on the Saudis to cooperate with the Turkish police investigation in a way that was probably designed to get President Trump to take more action against the Saudi crown prince. None of it worked, but nevertheless, there was a media manipulation campaign and I didn't want the book to be part of that. So when there were parts of the transcript that had been reported in the Turkish press, I would Refer, referred to those in a different chapter and I was very sceptical in how I treated those excerpts but the, the excerpts I have used are based on the well, 45 minutes were played to visiting officials in Ankara, although the Turks said that they had recorded something like seven hours of, of relevant material. And I thought what was most interesting and what the book has more of than any other account are the conversations which took place before the murder, uh, actually beginning on the Friday before the Tuesday, uh, when Khashoggi visited the consulate for the first time out of the blue to, to see what he needed to do to get a document to allow him to, to marry his Turkish fiancé. And it was at that very moment that the conversations with Riyadh started, uh, the plot to, to ensnare him, uh, the plan being to send a senior Saudi intelligence official back to Riyadh that weekend, and then for the hit squad to be pulled together over that weekend from branches of the Crown Prince's media department and from the, the Royal Guard. So I, I used the transcripts with a, a good degree of caution, but I was happy that the excerpts that I used were bona fide. As, as I, in other words, I didn't rely on some of the more sensational versions that appeared in the Turkish press, actually because I didn't need to, because the story was extraordinary enough as it was. Now, the consulate was unsurprisingly pretty heavily bugged uh, by the Turkish authorities. And one of the interesting little details in the book is the fact that uh, you, you found that uh, Saudi intelligence officers actually visited the consulate to debug it just five days before the crime was committed. It's pretty extraordinary that it was, again, uh, rebugged, essentially, between that debugging and uh, the day of the killing. Yes, that's right. When the hit squad arrived, they thought the place was clean. I mean, it, it was an extraordinary act of arrogance. And given that most diplomatic compounds have a safe speech room, which is has extra security for particularly confidential conversations, they didn't use that either. And they also failed to remove the video footage from all the places where it, where it was being recorded. There was a police booth outside the consulate, which the Saudis forgot about. So they removed the hard drive 
archive from inside the consulate that recorded the video images, but Turkish police managed to go inside the, the police booth to find a, a recording there. So both in terms of pictures of the hit squad arriving and the sound of the killing taking place and the planning for the killing, it was an extraordinarily badly prepared, botched operation, um, made even more complete by this ridiculous appearance of a, of a so-called body double after the killing, who looked a bit like Khashoggi and who wore his clothes and walked around Istanbul with a false beard, pretending to be him as if nothing had happened. Dipping into the realm of speculation here, but why do you think they chose to commit the crime in the consulate? Uh, as you write, at one point, they could have just shot him in the street, essentially. Well, I think it was a crime of opportunity. He had presented himself to the consulate on the Friday and they had said, come back on Tuesday. So he was walking into their, into their laps. It was a, it's a very successful trap. I mean, it was incredibly brazen and incredibly stupid to think that they could, could get away with this, uh, given that he would be missed and given that his fiance was waiting outside and she, she was a witness to him not coming out again. As you say, they could have shot him in the street. It makes one wonder whether there was an attempt to send a message to other Arab dissidents and Arab exiles in Istanbul that, that they were not safe. And I think not just in Saudi Arabia, but, but in other Arab capitals, there was mounting frustration that Istanbul had become a sort of safe zone for um, broadcasting opinions contrary to the governments of, around the region. I also think that perhaps the Saudis were emboldened by what had happened in Salisbury earlier that year when two Russian agents had attempted to use a nerve agent to kill a, a man regarded as a, a traitor, a, a, a double agent. And so there was a sense of perhaps impunity. I write in the book about a context in which the so-called rules-based order was breaking down, in which critics and journalists were increasingly considered fair game. Arguably, an environment made even worse by President Trump, who had frequently attacked the press in his own country, adding to a, an atmosphere in which it was almost as if anything anything goes. I'm thinking back to the, the G20 summit last November in Buenos Aires when Vladimir Putin sat down next to the Saudi crown prince and, and high-fived him and they sort of backslapped. And one got a sense there of two leaders who believed they had the right to do whatever they wanted to do and would get away with it. I learned from your book that Saudi Arabia is actually due to host the G20 next year. It's quite extraordinary. That would be quite an event. Well, I, I, there's no clear indication, is there, of the rehabilitation of the Saudi crown prince. We also had the G20 in Japan this year, where the crown prince was literally standing center stage next to uh, Donald Trump. And in fact, President Erdogan was standing on the other side of, of Donald Trump, having to grin and bear it. But yes, and I think I think there are various factors at play here. Um, the flotation of Aramco, was the world's most profitable company, was considered an incredibly attractive prize for a stock exchange if and when it moves beyond Saudi Arabia itself to a foreign exchange. You had the even more significantly the price of oil and the ability of, of the Saudis to increase or reduce production of oil at a crucial moment because in November 2018, just a month after the killing of Khashoggi, US sanctions against Iran kicked in and so that reduced the flow of oil to the global market which had the potential to drive up the price price, which meant that Donald Trump was even more anxious that the Saudis should produce more oil to reduce the price. So you, you can see various economic and geopolitical factors playing into how Trump handled this murder. 
Now, uh, Turkey's strategy after the killing is, of course, very interesting. Uh, Ankara basically started a pretty coordinated and very carefully orchestrated campaign of uh, leaks that October. Uh, I remember it very vividly because uh, I just started the BBC and it was a huge story that we were covering and it had this great international interest. Just talk about that uh, that Turkey strategy, where it emerged. Was it as carefully orchestrated, as carefully coordinated as it appeared or were they just sort of making it up as they went along really? Essentially what happened was within a few hours of the murder, the head of Turkish intelligence, Hakan Fidan, had listened back to the, the key moments of the, the audio tape. And then the Turks had a, had a choice as to what they were going to do with that material. And for a couple of weeks, they tried to persuade the Saudis to let them into the consulate, to let them into the consul's residence where the body may have been driven after the killing. And the Saudis made it incredibly difficult for them. It was only until, what, the 15th, 16th of October that they were admitted into, the police were admitted into the consulate itself. And then on the 17th, the, the residents, given that the killing had happened on the 2nd, and given that the Saudis had had cleaning squads come in day after day to erase all evidence with remarkable success. I mean, the most successful part of the operation was the cleanup afterwards. And it was also another indication of state culpability, because it's one thing to say, we didn't order this killing, but it is another to spend two weeks trying to erase all traces of it. So the Turks were understandably very angry about this. But they then also had to work out what they were going to do with the information that they had. And I think there was a choice here. I mean, they could have undermined the Saudi crown prince to such an extent. They might have tried to, to remove him from power. And I don't think they wanted to do that, because I think President Erdogan respected King Salman, the the custodian of the two holy mosques. He also did not have the support of President Trump in taking that kind of action against the Saudi crown prince. He may also not have had direct intelligence that amounted to a kill order from the Saudi crown prince. There's a lot of other circumstantial evidence, but there wasn't an audible or written kill order as far as we know. And I don't think it was in Erdogan's game plan to try and have the crown prince removed. If he did want that, then he would have needed an enormous amount of diplomatic cover provided by the Americans, and that diplomatic cover didn't exist. So what conclusion, the conclusion that I reached was that the Turks were trying to isolate the Saudi crown prince to clip his wings, but not to remove him. And they may not have had enough evidence to do that anyway. There was also a very, um, we're referring a bit before to the uh, sort of geopolitical aspect of all this. There was a, a game of chess going on, really. Uh, it was in many senses a clash between two rivals for leadership of the Sunni Muslim world. To put it in uh, rather sensational terms, I suppose, you know, Turkey or Erdogan is very conscious of that image of himself as this Sunni leader. And MBS, I suppose, is a direct, or could be seen as a direct rival in that pursuit. So there's that uh, whole geopolitical aspect that we have to consider as well. Yes, there is a geopolitical aspect. I mean, there's also been a lot of speculation that the Turks were trying to extract financial loans from the Saudis in exchange for not taking the case against Saudi Arabia that much further. Uh, we know a, a Saudi delegation went to Ankara, met Erdogan, and probably, allegedly, tried offering his administration a, a, a lot of money. And I was told that President Erdogan was furious about that and said, you know, I'm not going to be bought off in this way. Although it is true that the Turkish 
Turkish economy had begun to slow in the autumn of 2018, and the Turks had had financial assistance from the arch rivals of the Saudis, the Qataris. So yes, there, there are all sorts of rivalries in play here. I think the Saudi crown prince w- was particularly anxious about President Erdogan's role in the Arab world and his championing of the Palestinian cause and his seeming to usurp some of the authority that his father had traditionally possessed as some kind of champion of, uh, of Muslim causes. I mean, if you talk to Turkish officials, they will say that this business about seeking some leadership role in the Arab world is nonsense and that this is some sort of paranoia on behalf of the Saudis. And I think it's true that the debacle, the disaster of the war in Syria has completely undermined any claim President Erdogan might have had to some sort of leadership in, in the Muslim world, given that he had allowed these foreign fighters and jihadists to, to go into Syria in, in an attempt to remove President Assad, and the whole thing turned into a complete disaster. But I also think that the Crown Prince had a degree of paranoia about Erdogan. I mean, there was this famous trip the Crown Prince took to Egypt earlier in 2018, when, according to Egyptian newspaper editors, he described Turkey as part of a triangle of evil. In other words, he had this resentment against the Turks that may well have stretched back into Ottoman history and the fact that one of his forefathers had been executed in in Istanbul and this fear that somehow Turkey was walking taller uh, in the world than Saudi Arabia was and that he was trying to restore Saudi pride through his economic programs, economic reforms, his social reforms to take Saudi Arabia to a better place. And I, I, I I think you can certainly read the murder of Jamal Khashoggi as a deliberate snub to President Erdogan from those who ordered the murder. And although it was a crime of opportunity because Khashoggi was there, he was going to get married there, he was going to the consulate, it it was more than that. It, it It was a definite blow at what was perceived to be a rival state. Now, you were correspondent in Turkey back in the 1990s, I believe, and uh, you return periodically to report from here, uh, not just the Khashoggi case. Uh, I think you were here most recently uh, reporting from the border on Turkey's recent incursion into Syria. Uh, so you've seen a fair few changes over over the course of that uh, that time. Could you just compare reporting from Turkey today and reporting from Turkey 20 years ago? What's changed? How has the atmosphere changed? You know, what What have you observed in that time? Well, I think Turkey is a lot richer than it was. When I arrived, uh, the average per capita income in 1991 was something like, it was a few thousand dollars per head a year. I moved to Beolu, uh, which was a rundown, poor area, turn of the century townhouses, which were neglected, abandoned, and a lot of poor migrants from the Anatolian countryside had, had moved in, in, in this great sort of industrial revolution that, that was happening in Turkey and, and still is happening in Turkey. If you go down Istiklal Chadesi now, you're as likely to hear Arabic as you are Turkish because of the huge influx of Arabs, refugees from the Syrian conflict, and indeed from across the Arab Arab world. It's become more socially conservative. You see a lot more headscarves than you used to see. Obviously, the law has changed so that women can now wear headscarves in government buildings, which wasn't wasn't possible when I first moved to Turkey. Um, There is still that 
tension between Islamist and secular branches of Turkish society. I think Turkey is an enormously successful country. You know, it's moved into being a member of the G20. It's uh, alongside Saudi Arabia, ironically. It's posted huge economic growth, often at the expense uh, of its environment and of its natural beauty. It's a huge tourist hub, as we know, although it's also obvious that relations between Turkey and the West, which have always been rocky, but have really, I think, reached a new low. Relations with the United States are now at their worst level since the Cyprus dispute of 1974. Uh, Relations with Europe are extremely poor. Turkey essentially being paid billions of euros to keep migrants from crossing into Europe after the refugee exodus of 2015. And absolutely no sign of Turkey being anywhere near joining the European Union, which was at least a hope and and a prospect, a distant prospect when I first moved to Turkey, but I think an even more distant prospect now, given the state of Turkish politics and President Erdogan's determination to carve his own path, I think. Turkey is much more of a Middle Eastern country, even arguably a Central Asian country, uh, than it was uh, when I first moved there, because there was a direction of travel that was very clear, and I think that direction of travel has gone. That was Jonathan Rugman. Many thanks to him. That was episode number 103 of Turkey Book Talk. If you're a fan of the podcast, you can join as a member on Patreon to support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Tourist and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, once again, thank you very much for listening. Bütün dünyayı